שלום, this is Netta from אולפן בית. Last night, to commemorate Israel's Memorial Day, we invited רון בן טובים to speak about his academic and artistic work about uh, dealing with trauma using writing and poetry. Uh, he did it eloquently. It was very, very interesting, and we hope you'll enjoy it as well. Thank you for listening. to talk to the microphone is this better yes. okay <clears throat> thank you unknown person in the back um, so um, I'm very nervous about this kind of talk because um, maybe I shouldn't be saying this but whatever um, because it this this talk will be divided grossly to three chapters uh, the first of which would have to do with the How my PhD has to do with war or memory or writing, poetry being a, 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 a kind of writing. Um, the second part, so that's where I'm super professional. I'm going to mess it up, but that's like my, my professional me. So I'm, I'm the least concerned about that part because I've done this. Uh, the second part I'm a little more concerned about, which kind of is a loose discussion about, which some of you may have heard, about the connection in general between art and memory. And what is a uh, poetic remembering? Um, and the third part has to do with my own poetic remembering, and that's the part I'm the most nervous about, um, because it is a trait of human life that is the e- it's easiest to speak of others' experience, and it's the most difficult to talk about your own experience. Um, I've done a lot of work in, able, in order to be able to do that, uh, but that doesn't make it less concerning for me. So as we go through the chapters, um, we'll see how it goes. Okay, so I, I'm not going to do this. I want to keep this, you know, comfortable. And if you, can, if you want to interject in the middle, I know a lot of you are very polite European types who don't, who don't tend to do that, but I encourage you to do that. Uh, if you want to ask a question in the middle of something, please feel free to do so. Um, and I'll try to keep it loose, but the first couple of paragraphs I feel important, like I, I, I want to read it maybe for... Uh, kind of an emotional anchor for me, and then we'll kind of try to take off from there. So I'll give it, so we have three chapters. The first, the first one is called, let's see if this works, The Meaning Game. War is a life-ending event on a large scale, an event in which all involved, active participants, families, victims, perpetrators, bystanders, are stripped of their humanity. It's as if there is a game, a game we call being human. It's a very special, very all-inclusive game of pretend, one in which everyone has to be on board in order to play. And war, among other types of experiences, ends that game. You can think of it in terms of a running inside joke, where everyone is in on the joke, but the joke is ruined when someone refuses to play anymore. And those affected by the violence and aftermath of war no longer play the game. 
not because they necessarily choose to. They, I think, for the most part, would like to play, would like to return to a former pretend, but have either forgotten the rules or cannot bring themselves to resume the play. There's been a lot of talk in theoretical terms in the 20th century regarding types of games societies play in general, whether gender games, legal games, justice games, intellectual games. But the game I've been focusing on and that I find the most interesting has been the game of language. Let's call it the meaning game. I don't want to get into too much of a thing about this, but basically it means that language is a social game and that the inability to describe experience to the point of personal, sometimes physical pain and suicidal tendencies is related to that inability to play the game or inability to play the game. Right? Or at the very least, lay extreme doubt on the game's ability to end well for the participant. So it's not necessarily you don't know the rules anymore, you kind of maybe know the rules, but you don't believe it's fun, or you don't believe you'll win. And in this case, it means you're not sure that whatever it is you're trying to describe to people will be described. So I'm, and, I'm, and the war is not unique in that, ex in that respect, because everyone has experiences that when asked, how was it like, find it very difficult to find the words to describe how was it like. And so that's the feeling of being outside the game. Now, this could be funny. Uh, and I've chosen two examples of people who refuse to participate in the game that it takes on a humorous way. So one of them is from a, a movie called Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't know if you know this movie. But the, has anyone seen Guardians of the Galaxy? It's a very popular movie. No one, that's fine. Three people in the front, one in the back. Okay, so Guardian of the Galaxy has a, a character called Drax who is irony deaf. And one of the important games that I talk about in my research is irony. So saying things that you don't necessarily mean and then the other person understanding that you don't necessarily mean that and you're having fun. People who don't understand irony are not fun. Two people who do, I should say. So this is the dialogue that happens in the, in the movie. Right? This is Drax. That's a character who doesn't get it. Cease your yammering and relieve us from this irksome confinement. They're in prison. Yeah, I'll have to agree with a walking thesaurus on that one. Do not ever call me a thesaurus. It's just a metaphor, dude. His people are, con are completely literal. Metaphors are going to go over his head. Nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. All right, so it's funny, right? He doesn't get the joke, but the joke is on him. Another example, a more famous one, and uh, interestingly, another sci-fi example, this is random, but I think this is somewhat related, is from the, uh, the series Star Trek The Next Generation, in which there is a, a character called Data, who is an android, so he's a robot who looks like a human, and who is famously not funny. And one of the things that separates him from his human co-workers is his failure to understand irony or to get a joke, right? Um, so this is a, 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 a kind of discussion he has with Whoopi Goldberg's um, 19, late 80s Whoopi Goldberg, oh, we miss you so much, um, character called Okona. Okay, so you agree with Okona that I'm missing a very important human factor. I never said that. I simply said, I've never seen you laugh. I am capable of that function, what is expected of me. Do you even know what a joke is? Of course I do. It is a witticism, a gag, a bon mot, a fluctuation of, stop, look. 
you and I here, we're talking, we're having an intimate conversation. Why? Because you're a droid and I'm annoyed. Now, annoyed here is wordplay, right? She's annoyed by his inability to get jokes, but she's also a humanoid. He's an android and she's a humanoid, right? Because why? Because that's what I am. Have I said something to offend you? No. Then why are you annoyed? Because you're a droid and I'm annoyed. Humanoid, yes, you told a joke. Yes, I am not laughing. <laughs> yes, perhaps the joke was not funny. No, the joke was funny. It's you, Data. Are you sure? Yes, I agree. What do I do? Well, under, under normal circumstances, I say, seek a higher power. She's like the spiritual advisor character. But in your case, probably a smarter computer would do, right? Is in order, right? So the focus of my research was on what do people feel when the game is not playable for them anymore, when experiences are not communicable, and when problems of language become very apparent to them. The game becomes transparent, right? So when someone says, hey man, bury the hatchet, and they, and they saw, I'm just throwing an example, a friend of theirs die with a hatchet to the head, that's not a figure of speech they accept. One of the examples I, I used in one of the uh, talks I used to give was, I'm, I, I'm a big uh, basketball fan, and uh, there was a point where the NBA, uh, National Basketball Association, the American League, had a player's strike. And, one of the, and there was a story, I was about to do a conference, and instead of you know, reading interesting things, I was reading the sports page, I'm sure some people do this, and there was a comment by the player's representative that says, this is war. And then I looked down at the comments, at, you know, talkback section, and one of the people said there, I was in Iraq for two, for two tours. This is not war. I saw war. What you do is give money to very rich players. And that was a very interesting moment. And people start arguing with this person in the comment section, like, hey, man, chill. I mean, thank you for your service, but that's, it, it, it's a figure of speech. You don't have to like, get all defensive. Now, that position is very interesting to me because to me, as a researcher and as a person who reads poetry, that's ground zero of poetry. Poetry, or the need to communicate in other means other than the normal ones, also means that the normal ones are not working for you anymore. So that poetry isn't you saying, I could say that she's super pretty, but I wanna be cool, so I'll say she's as beautiful as a rose. It's not flaunting your verbal abilities always. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it is an inability to speak what is like one is expected to speak in normal human behavior. And that moment of not being able to communicate with others is a painful moment. And it is a part of the experience of what soldiers experience when they return home. So they don't, they don't become poets because they feel like maybe it's a great way of you know, getting into a relationship, impressing a girl with a nice poem. They get into poetry because poetry is what saves their lives. So, great. So in a way, that's why I want to get into one example of a poem that may, may, maybe some of you saw the video of me reading it, but we'll discuss it anyway, called Burying the Dead. Uh, now I should say that my focus wasn't on the First World War or the Second World War, which is like the canonical war poems of the 20th century. My focus was, was much more boring than that, I guess, in academic terms. And these are internet poems. So poems by contemporary soldiers for the most part. The oldest war I deal with is the Falkland War, which is 1982-ish. 
And this is from that war. So this is a veteran of that war. Usually it's Iraq War veterans, Americans. And this is a, uh, a poem called Bearing the Dead that really focuses on a lingual gap between veterans and those who surround them once they return home safely that is more like a difference in language. So one person speaks a different kind of English than the other. So, and here's the poem. I'll read it. I have it up. I know I have it behind me, but I want a page. Okay. It died? All right. I need, it needs to, you need to press on the um, slideshow icon thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? In the, in the PowerPoint? Maybe. Try play. I'm afraid. Okay. Okay. Burying the dead is a metaphor. So this is about the figure of speech burying the dead. What do we mean when we say bury your dead? You mean, you know, what's past is past, right? They don't literally mean bury the dead. Who's they, do you think? Who is the they that don't actually mean bury the dead, that he is reacting to? Could be family, could be friends, right? People who, are, who seem to be frustrated with this person's inability to go on with his life. Try not to think too much about it. He's talking to himself now, right? They mean put things to rest, pull your socks up, stop harping on, get on with it, let things lie, get a grip, forget. They've never buried the dead, literally, right? So we have a problem here. We have, we have a break, a loophole in the game. The game is, I'm going to use a figure of speech and you're going to say, cool. Bury the dead, not cool. Not cool anymore. And the problem isn't, like I said before, that he doesn't understand the rules of the game. He understands the rules quite well. And when you ask him, what do I mean when I say bury the dead, he isn't just saying burying people in the dirt. He understands all the figurative connotations of that sentence. Forgetting, get a grip, all the things he's apparently unable to do. So he understands what he's supposed to do, but he can't do it, right? And the thing preventing him from doing it is a very distinct, concrete moment in time in which he buried the people that he knew, right? That he buried people literally. So the figure of speech doesn't work because he literally did something that prevents that figure of speech from, from working, the game from going on, right? Now, this gap is a very serious thing. And you could say, and I, I think I have been saying, and I think I may be kind of right, but who knows, that it's a very important step. Um, because being able to talk about anything at all is already better than not being able to talk about anything. And the bubble of seclusion that surrounds people who experience many kinds of experience, but also war, is one that is difficult to live with. And this is a livable, this is already something. Another thing that we need to talk about is that the impetus, the reason for him writing this poem isn't just the fact that he finds it difficult to talk about his experience. It's an obligation to other people. So part of the problem with not being able to describe events correctly when there's other people affected by those events is that you're afraid you'll get it wrong. Because if you'll get it wrong, if you'll describe it wrongly, then those who say died in that war, 
that you feel you are speaking for or those who have been muted by that war will be misrepresented. And I think there isn't a greater moral failure for a survivor of some kind of disaster than to fail those who left behind. This could be Holocaust survivors, war survivors, survivors of sexual assault. The, uh, the feeling that there's others who are suffering and you have betrayed their trust. You are, though, you are kind of um, the amb ambassador to the normies, right? You're the one who's supposed to explain to, the to normal people what goes on inside the experience and you've failed. Okay. Now, so what happens when you're too slam, kind of, you're too glued to the facts. The facts are too important. You have to get it right to the point where you're not describing anything because the facts are so precious to you. And how do you bridge that gap into a kind of discussion of your experiences that isn't really factual at all? A lot of things, or at least isn't only factual, right? That's, there's a bit of a leap. To write a poem about, that's not a description of his experiences. There's no battle scenes here. There's no the name. These are recurring themes, so this could have been there. Um, no names of people who died and places they died. There's no descriptive element here. There's only a feeling of being alone after war. And now, so what I would argue, and this is where we get into our second chapter, is that what is required is a different kind of memory. And a different kind of memory that is not only factual, that has use of other things that may seem in the first stage to be very inappropriate, such as imagination, such as humor, right? Things that don't seem to fit the general serious scheme of talking about a very serious thing, that a different kind of imagination and, and memory is in, is in order. And this is where I'd like to talk about more loosely, and here my level of anxiety rises a bit, uh, about what I mean when I say poetic memory. Now, I should say, spoiler alert, poetic memory includes erasure, which, which I should say erasing information. Saying some information won't make it to the last cut, because that's what artists do. If a musician wanted to make a song and recorded every sound he made throughout like the week he was thinking about ideas and said, fuck it, Let's put all those ideas in a song, and that'll be the song. That'll be a horrible song. And no one would ever, I mean, I would listen to it personally, because that's my taste, generally speaking. But most people, if your aim is general, more general communication, then that, that attitude toward art is, 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 a, is a failure of art. You need to reach out and touch something, right? And so editing is part of the process. Choosing which idea works and which idea doesn't is part of the process, which means that some of the information you hold very dear that is super important, and I should add to that, some of the things that you were never able to say and you were frustrated by your inability to say them are not going to be said. You're going to lose that battle in order to win a different one, right? So let's talk about a bit the connection between art and memory. And what do I mean when I say poetic memory? Now, the reason why we're going to do this little anthropological historical discussion is because I'm kind of going to say art has always been about memory. Art has always been about an attempt to record something and not record other things, which is what I just said. So 
I'm going to talk about two major classical myths. One is the birth of painting. Uh, the birth of painting is a myth that involves a, a character called Cora. Now, here I'd like you to prick your ears. At the first moment when I was talking about the soldiers being super sad about not being able to stuff, it was, pre it was pretty obvious I was talking about predominantly guys. So issues of gender were not in the forefront, okay? Issues of gender may find themselves creeping in as we conclude until the point of maybe completely overturning by the time I end, hopefully, who knows, right? So we have a figure called Cora. Cora is a, is no, is a nobody. Uh, Cora is known for being the daughter of someone. That's how it used to be. And her father was Butadis, who was very famous as a potter, very inventive potter, classical Greek potter. She's just his daughter, and she's mentioned in the Chronicles as being his daughter. Cora di Butadis, right? His, it's like, you know, my daughter is Nama of Ron. That's kind of her last name, right? And Cora has a boyfriend. She really likes him. And her boyfriend is about to be sent out to war. So already the focus isn't the boyfriend being sent out to war. This also has to do with the boring historical facts of the fact that if you went to war in classical Greece, the chances of ev anyone ever seeing you again, even your body, are very slim. So saying goodbye when you go out to war is saying goodbye. And Cora doesn't want to say goodbye. She's not that thrilled about that idea. And she wants to save something from him if she loses him forever. And so she asks him to stand across against the wall, and she ever so gently sketches his, the outlines of his shadow on the wall. And that is the, mirth, the, the, the myth of the invention of drawing or painting. That painting, as an art form, was invented in order to remember things that are about to be lost. And if you think about it, every painting, even the most kind of realist painting, kind of does that. Even if you're a hobbyist painter, you go out with your whatever easel and you see a beautiful mountain range and you're like, I want to draw this because I don't know if I'll ever see it again. And so the attempt to, to draw that mountain is also an attempt to keep something from that experience because you know you're about to lose it. All right? So this is Cora's attitude as well. She's about to lose someone. But the information she records isn't everything. Right? She doesn't keep a diary of, you know, he wakes up, he likes his hot chocolate at five. I, t I have a piece of skin in case genetic engineering, you know, um, improves in the future and I can reproduce him and make passionate love with him. She just keeps an outline, right? It's insufficient. There's something sad about it, right? To think about this, this girl who's letting this person go out of her life and every time she looks at the outline, she remembers him, but at the same time, kind of doesn't, because it's really not that much of information to go with. It's just an outline. It could be anything. Uh, one of the famous after effects of losing a loved one is you start forgetting their faces. One would imagine she would be able to forget his face even with that outline. But it is something. And one of the interesting things that happens with this myth is it rolls on in the history of, in art history, as a kind of obsession of artists that attempt to reproduce this scene. So this is one early example, well, not that early, actually they're earlier, but this is one example. Here we have the same idea, only a bit later. Here we get a jump start, <laughs> swoop to the 21st century. Um, and this time it's two women drawing each other. And in photography, uh, again, two women drawing each other and a very protruding nice phallus here <laughs> in, the, in the background, right? So the work of memory 
in the, in the myth of creation of memory, of, sorry, of, of drawing, of art in its relation to memory, the work of memory is, in this myth, feminine work, not the work of men. And we can also get into why that is. Because men, by and large, never came back. And so it would be very hard for them to remember anything if they never came back. And if they did came back, chances are that we have some of their records in other forms, right? But it's a, it's, it's a much more prevalent experience for a woman to be that who remembers. Um, I, I may get to this later, but uh, I know the great book that no one reads, Moby Dick, has a great scene that I'm going to tell you about because you're not going to read the book anyway, um, in which, uh, so it's about a, a boat that sinks. Spoiler. Uh, I mean, it's been 200 years. I think, I think it's safe to spoil that book. Uh, it's about a ship that sinks. And before embarking on the, on the journey, Ishmael, the person who survives and writes the book, goes into a church. And the church is filled with these commemorative plaques and with crying women. Right? And the idea being that the people left behind, the widows, are always women and sisters and wives and mothers. And the odd surviving male kind of counterpart. So the one person who survived the shipwreck comes home and remembers. So even that man is already undertaking a predominantly feminine job, right? It is not up for the man to remember and to bring up the facts. It's up for the woman to mourn and so on and forth. So the second myth I'd like to talk about, I think we're good with time. The second myth is the myth of the invention of memory. This has more to do with poetry, less with um, visual arts, that's the word I was looking for? Yes. All right, so this is another classical myth. This time, our hero is Simonides, who is a poet. Now, poets back in the day did not have laptops. Or if you go to poetry readings today, they read straight from the smartphone, right? I don't, no judgment. It's how, how people roll, that's fine. Um, and so, in order to be able to be a successful poet, you had to had, have the vocabulary, have the rhetoric, but you also had to remember the thing. Otherwise, it would be pointless. And so you had to devise certain forms of technology, what we would call now technology, in order to remember. And those technologies now are things called, say, rhyme schemes, words that rhyme together, rhythm, right? These are all things that helped poets you know, the Iliad or classical Greek poems, these are not short poems. These are days long, right? And so you have, the, the, the text has to kind of help you remember it. That's why you had meter or rhythm to the words. That's why you had rhyme and so on and so forth. So meter and rhyme are kind of like ancient forms of servers, right? It's, 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 it's information-preserving technology. Right? And one of the leaders of technology in that time was Simonides, because he invented a whole new way of remembering, or his, the myth is that he remembers a whole new way to remember a poem or an argument, which is another thing you had to remember in advance. If you wanted to be a good rhetorician or a lawyer, you had to remember the argument in advance. Not like I'm winging it right now, horrible idea, I would have been executed on site. So the story about Simonides, to very, very, make a long story short, is that he was invited to recite a poem at the house of a warlord slash nobleman. And the point of the poem was, I'm the best. Write a poem about how I'm the best. So all the people in my party 
know I'm the best. It's like a, kind of like inviting a rapper or something like that, right? The point is, exalt me. And Simonides doesn't really do that. He kind of does that, but then he exalts the gods as well, which pisses off Scopas because he's like, no, I'm this shit, not the gods. You get only half the pay. So this is the, and we have a kind of financial dispute in order here. Simonides is kind of bummed, and then he's beckoned outside by a messenger. He says, some people are waiting for you. There are various versions of who's waiting outside. I'm not going to get into that because that's not the point of, the, of this. And he goes outside, and the second he goes outside, the roof collapses on everyone in the room, squishing everyone to, and this is my favorite phrase in the English language, a homogenous pulp. <laughs> you can see how I find this attractive, right? Um, they're mush. The, 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 the building collapsed in such a way that everyone is just human paste to make it even more grotesque. And word of the disaster, you know, get, gets sent far and wide. Mourners want to come to mourn their families and they're, you know, stuck with a problem. Well, the problem is, A, I want to bury my loved one. What, what's the problem? Where is he? Right? Who is he and where is he? Because I can't tell. Interestingly enough, this is a very old problem that has continuously ever and ever more modern versions. So this is a, this is a pressing problem in war up until maybe the birth of genetic identifications, right? And even then, that's still an issue. And so everyone's at a loss. And this a loss is similar to the loss of words that I've been talking about earlier. You want to communicate something. You want to get over with something. In this case, you want to get over with a burial. In these ancient cultures, burial was a very important part other, other than for hygienic reasons of the process of letting go of a loved one, right? Uh, Judaism famously has, right, the seven days you're obligated to mourn, and then the 30 days in which the burial is complete with the tombstones, and then the first year in which you still are technically in mourning, and then the, the edict is that after the first year, you need to let that loved one escape your heart, forget him. You're supposed to forget him and move on with your life. You're not supposed to be stuck in the mourning process because that is a very unproductive part, right? It's melancholy, right? This kind of, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Pathological inability to leave sadness alone, right? And live. And so in order to start this process, you need to bury people. And if you can't bury them, you're, you're screwed. And here comes Simonides to the rescue because he remembered the parts of the poem that he was to recite according to the placement of the people around the table and in the room. So because he could recount that back, see, he's like a computer. He's like data, right? He has this super memory. He could say, uh, you know, Joe is there, Michael is there, Chaim, I need to put it like an Israeli name somewhere there, Chaim is here, and thus enabling loved ones to collect their... So poetry is the text that is used to remember. And specifically, the text used to remember things that are lost to memory or about to be lost to memory. Think about the simple fact that some people in this room has, have ever, sometimes, maybe in some respect, heard of the name Achilles. Maybe it's because of the Achilles heel, but you know who the guy was. He's been dead for like 5,000 years. 
And the reason you know him is because of the poems that commemorate him. So poetry is a very powerful when it's good, uh, which is a whole different discussion for a whole different evening. Um, then it enables you to remember. Now to the part that I find the most excruciating and nervous, right? Which is, oh, okay, so this is the Moby Dick thing. I already talked about it. All right, which is family inheritance. Now, this is where I get, I, get I, I, I guess you could say more Israeli in this discussion because we are talking about a very Israeli day, a not necessarily Israeli phenomenon, but a very Israeli take on that phenomenon. And this, everything I've been saying up until now, what people experience after war, whether they're soldiers, bystanders, families who are waiting. My mother still hates me for going to the army, right? Um, but she doesn't get to hate me, and we'll get to that later, mommy. Um, um, I'm, that was super creepy. <laughs> I apologize. Super creepy. Anyway, um, where was I? Mother, yes. Um, so everyone is affected by this. That is a universal truth. This is true to anyone who's experienced the kind of event that I've been calling the event that is in a, in a, you find hard to describe to other people and you feel like there's a knowledge of it that only you have or other people who've experienced similar experiences, but not because you talk about it, because you share a mutual understanding of what the ramifications of that experience is, which explains, by the way, in the military experience, the prevalence of support groups for soldiers that have soldiers and no one else but soldiers because there's this sense that they understand each other. Um, and so these are universal things. And the relationship between art and memory, these are universal things. Um, so I'll begin with the, the Israeli thing that is most apparent here, which is me. Um, I wrote this thesis, my, my PhD thesis, I've never mentioned this, the PhD thesis was about these poems. That's why I am unemployed. And um, <laughs> I should say unemployable, but never mind. Um, and the reason that is that I had my own stuff to process. And I've been trying to write about it. I used to write as a younger person. I used to write a bit after the army. And I tried to kind of mediate. I had a short story about the ghost of a, of a terrorist that I played backgammon with but that didn't really do it for me. I had a poem about a guy who I knew who died so violently from an explosion that he evaporated, and I, a poem that describes how I'm sitting in my bathroom and seeing like the, the, the foggy mirror and thinking maybe that's a part of him as well. So very touching stuff, but obviously didn't do the work, and I don't know what the work is, um, but we'll get to that maybe later. Um, and then I got into the kind of academic aspect of writing of it, and, I, and, maybe I, and maybe I thought somewhere in the back of my mind, even though I didn't think about it in, at first, maybe this is my way out. I think I only understood it in the middle of my PhD. So I'm knee deep in soldier poetry, not having a clue that this is all about me and about my father, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, and at some point I, got, I caught on to that, and I was like, oh, cool. So this is my creative output. I haven't really stopped writing like I thought I was, like a poser that I thought I was, I'm actually just writing in a different form. And th that form is my PhD. And I'm doing this through kind of thematic rationalization as opposed to metaphors, you know, good enough. And then I finished my PhD and it wasn't good enough. And again, the question why wasn't it good enough or why I asked that question, that's a very great question. I don't have an answer for that. It was obviously not good enough. And 
why I included my father was because um, I come from a, a family that is uh, half kind of Holocaust-y. Um, and the Holocaust is a very open, open subject that uh, you'll get to why I just called it Holocaust-y. The Holocaust is a very open subject in my household to the point where when I go into other people's houses, they find me very disturbing <laughs> how quickly I just pick that up, including my wife's family, I should say. Um, so the Holocaust was never a problem for me to discuss. But somehow, for some whatever reason, certain wars that took place in the 70s that my parents were, you know, of, of age while were very hushed. And my father, who was not a very talkative person anyway, wasn't, was much less talkative when it came to that. And as much as I, so when I proceeded with my PhD and I kind of caught on to the fact that I'm trying to maybe A, deal with my own things and B, decipher my father's silence. So like, okay, he's not gonna tell me, I'm gonna talk to these other people on paper and then I'm gonna figure out what he's going through. And through the process of understanding that, I started prodding my parents with questions. Really weird questions. Um, like, what did dad do in the war? And then my mom would start crying, very ineffective. And other, another question was, my mother in that war lost her boyfriend whom she had a very serious relationship with as an adult before she met my father. So one time I just sat with her and I said, hey, didn't dad ever think it was super weird that your ex is a dead hero? I would think that's super weird. That's too much pressure for me. Like I'm already, like the shadow of my wife's exes is so overpowering to me. I can't even imagine how it's like to have a saint <laughs> as your, as, as your you know, kind of com competitive ex. And she's like, you know, I never thought of it. You should ask your dad, which is obviously not an option. <laughs> and, and this went on for an option. Now, the reason why I'm raising my dad also is when I was a younger soldier, I should say the Israeli army, there's mandatory service for two or three years, sometimes four, and then there's a reserve service for many more years. And when I was a younger soldier, I was 19 or 20, my parents came to pick me up one weekend when I was in the army and, was, and families were allowed to visit. This is one of the idiosyncrasies of the Israeli army, the kind of meshing of family and military life that I find grotesque. But at the time, I was like, cool, my parents are taking me out to a restaurant. And this is in the Golan Heights, which was presumably where my father was during the Yom Kippur War, which is the war of 73. And we're driving down, we just had steak, Everyone's doing great. And we're driving down this road, and my, again, not very talkative father says this, apropos of nothing. So my, my, me and my father's kind of hobby is sitting in silence, awkwardly, for me. And we were doing that. I was doing great. And he said, last time I was here, there were burning tanks everywhere, and it was smelled like burning bodies. I was like, hello. <laughs> that's, that's a tidbit. Right? That, that, they'll do one for you. So I had a sense from that kind of story that things were going on. And I also had a sense about later, I'm talking about from my experience now, that there's something weird about time here. Because my dad is not in 1973. He's with his son in 2000, whatever it was, one. You, can't, you should know the difference, you know? And this is not 1973 right now. It's 2001 right now. But for my dad, it was both at the same time. And we'll get to why that's, that's important later. So let's get back to me not feeling like the PhD did its work. I was like, Ron, you're a poser. You write about other people trying to struggle with their demons. Where are you struggling with your demons? You're just writing about other people's demons. That's the easy way out. It's not an easy way out per se, but you know, 
I was tough on myself. And I was, and I was about to have a baby, my firstborn uh, daughter, Nama, who is now old and very uh, insolent. And I felt pressure. I was like, she's about to be born into a world where she's going to have my dad, this silent figure who's weirdly silent about things he shouldn't be silent about, who just out of nowhere says burning bodies, not not cool, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that silent, disgruntled person, right? So I forced myself into writing something. And I should say, I've been trying to write about my military experiences for literally almost decades without nothing coming out but experiments. And one of those experiments was interesting because I caught on to something. And this is another important lesson. Never, you know, not try because you never know what comes out. And so I had pages of of failure, but I had one interesting moment because the other scene that I kept wanting to write, not for myself but for my grandmother, was the scene in which she and her little brother and her mother were separated from her father in 1944 when the Nazis occupied Hungary. That, it's like a seminal moment in my family's life because they had to like split, they were supposed to rendezvous again, never saw him again. So this is a 10-year-old girl losing her father in a very dramatic fashion, kind of very dramatic story, and I felt obligated to tell that story for her because my grandmother, again, is not the writing type. So this is where my obligation towards her comes out, right? And so these two were kind of messing in my mind. Should I write about the army? Fuck, I'm not being able. All right, so I'll write about my grandmother. Damn it, can't do that either. And one of those experiments was an experiment where I described that scene, that kind of Hungarian scene, and I, I couldn't tell possibly how her little brother looked like because he's 70 now, or he was 60 then, or something like that, and he's this really tough Israeli guy who was born in Hungary, but he's this farmer dude, all suntan, tough, no, take no bullshit for no one kind of guy. I can't imagine him being six. So I just wrote him, I went out thinking, I just wrote him as being six with the face of a sunburned 60-year-old man. And I was like, wait, that's, that's interesting. And one of the things that made it interesting for me was that maybe like my father's story, it's two things happening at the same time, right? It's the story and then it's whatever I was told about that story and whatever I know. And what I know is that the dude is that guy who's, who coughs all the time and swears and yells, talks way too loud, right? So his face on the body of a very scared five or six-year-old in Budapest. And that worked for me. And then I was like, wait, if that worked for me there, let's try to expand this experiment. And that's what informed my book, which I eventually published last year, called Nartik Yalom, which in Hebrew is, means diamond purse. And Nartik Yalom isn't a story about only my military experiences. It's a story about how the history, depth history of violence in my family and my history with violence have a dialogue with each other. And one of the, one of the ways I, I, I kind of try to explain kind of Yom Zikon or Memorial Day in Israeli terms is that it's never just your war. It's always someone else's war too. Often, someone else is in your family. So even when you go to war and you're like, oh, I'm all fucked up by my experiences, you can never really tell 
A, can I tell this to someone else in my family? Am I triggering their experiences? Do I want to talk about this? Is this a discussion I can have in my family? Or B, was my experience informed to begin with with their experience that I knew of before? So one of the creepy experiences that, now, so once I wrote, I read, the, I, 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 I wrote the book like in a blind flash. It's a horrible book, don't read it. I wrote it in a blind flash like two months. And when I was done with it, I was, like, I was happy. I was like, yes, this, this is what I needed. And I learned a lot from it since. I've been reading it. I've been translating it. I've had very intelligent friends ask very intelligent questions about it, which made me think about it again. So this book is a never-ending kind of wellspring of information for me about me. And here, here is some of the things I learned about me. A, I think men want to die. That's my opinion. Because my family history has been either men dying or men being weirdly okay with being sent to death. This is my opinion. On the other hand, women seem much less okay with dying. At least the women in my family. They're much more, how do we get past this? How do we create a reality as fucked up as it is that means we can keep on living for one more day? And so the women in my family suddenly came out as these very active, very proactive, very tenacious women. And I knew they were tenacious, you know, living with them. But the men seemed like zombies going out to death. And it dawned on me that I don't want to die. Now, one of the reasons why I say this is because that's a very unmasculine thing to say, at least in Israeli terms. I don't want to die. I'm not interested. You know? I, can't, I want to be with my kids. I want to be with my wife. can't see a, a good reason to, to try to kind of get rid of that. Now, this is not a political discussion about why war is bad. This is a domestic discussion. Right? This is me taking care of my family. So this is one thing I discovered about myself. Now, very recently, I had a discussion with a friend, and she said something that kind of lit a light bulb. Again, so I keep learning about these experiences as life goes on. And she said, you know, I lived this kind of safe life. I always felt like I didn't earn my independence until something horrible happened to me. And then, I, and then once that horrible thing happened to me, I could say to myself, yes, now I deserve it. Now, shockingly, once she said this, I began crying. I did it in a very masculine way. I tried to hide it, but she caught me. But I cried. And the reason why I cried is that I remember myself distinctly. This is the second Lebanon war. I'm already a reserved soldier. I'm already a consenting adult getting a phone saying, come die, and me being, sure, cool. I was like, what? No, that's not cool. And feeling like this conflicting forces that I'm driving. This is in the north of Israel. So I'm driving, and the whole way I'm like, my, I'm asking my body these questions, like, what are you doing right now? What, what is this thing we're doing? I'm not okay with this. And doing all the things I need to do to get where I am until the point where I feel like I'm in mortal danger. And the moment I felt in mortal danger, the first thought that came into my mind, two thoughts, was I'm never going to see my girlfriend again. That sucks. And I feel home. I feel like I arrived in a welcoming, warm place. And that scared the living shit of it out of me. Because war is not supposed to be a comfortable place. I felt like I finally joined my family. 
Whatever it was about me that made me feel like I hadn't joined my family until that point, too sensitive, writes poetry, you know, that my family is not that kind of family. So all the things that made me feel outside, suddenly I felt like I belonged, and it felt good, right? I felt like I was a picture in my parents' kind of black and white picture book, scrapbook, whatever you want to call it. And so that made me aware of what the role is, what I've been calling here inheritance, right? What is the kind of genetic or cultural, whatever you want to call it, whole other discussion, kind of load that you carry with you that also determines your relationship with violence? And that in my case, I guess, to a point, makes me fascinated by it. And what do I mean now, how did my work be, a, how is my work a work of erasure? Because I said art doesn't give out all the information, and I don't give out all the information. I don't have, in some cases, all the information. And you know what? In some cases, I full out invent the information. My grandmother, my mother's grandfather, who died alone in Auschwitz, I invented a whole scene where I hug him, that he wouldn't die alone as a soldier, because me as a young soldier is kind of a time-traveling character in the book, right? So. In my history now, he never died alone. I was there. I rewrote history, my own personal history, to a point where I feel comfortable with it. Now, just a la one last thing I want to say, because we're already, I think we're good, um, is the cover, which I think explains what I mean by remembering is also kind of forgetting. Um, this very weird, very dark cover is, in fact, this. It is a relic. Uh, Egyptian stella, I think it's called, like a, a huge tombstone, uh, in the British Museum that I uh, visited immediately after the war I just described as being weird with my girlfriend. I didn't die. Spoiler. And we went to London because that's where my parents lived at the time, and we went to the British Museum, and I saw this ugly thing. And I was like, what is this ugly thing? I have to see what it is. And I moved in closer. And then the little note says, you know, ancient whatever fucking dynasty, um, Stella created at the order of this and that pharaoh uh, in order to preserve rotting scrolls describing the myth of the creation of the world. So this is another version of data conversion, right? The scrolls were rotting away. The smart pharaoh, technologically savvy, said, we're about to lose all this precious information. Move it, right? Transfer it to a CD, which already sounds antiquated as we speak. Transfer it to stone, because on stone it will be permanent. And here comes this Egyptian farmer who couldn't give a fuck about any of this because this is way past the period. And it was like, this is a very useful stone for me. I'll use it as a millstone to grind wheat. And so all the center of the stilla is erased. And I was horrified because who is this stupid farmer? That was my first thought, right? That ruined this for all posterity. And yet the image kind of stuck in my mind. And the reason that image stuck in my mind and why I chose it as the image that for my cover is because I think it's a very nice example of just that. The attempt to remember everything is bound to fail. And the attempt to write, to make art, which I think this is, this is a work of art. Whatever it was before, it wasn't. Before it was a document. The attempt to make art always includes a, a kind of forgetting an erasure of information that allows you to speak about your experiences. Um, and I think that's it. I think I'm done. <laughs> All right.
<laughs> and, and thank you for so violently interjecting during my. I was. Yeah, whatever. Yes. Yes. Questions? I can ask, answer anything. Thank you for that comment, Peleg. <laughs> fell from a cliff of talking. <laughs> yes. Do you, feel, uh, do you feel like your, um, the way you handled your trauma, do you feel like you're done? No. <laughs> uh, I'm on to level three, which is what I'm writing right now. Uh, but I think that's, see, this is the kind of response that any and I don't consider myself an artist by any shape or form, but I wrote a book that's a fact, so I can't escape that fact. And that's the kind of cliche response any artist would give you about why you put out another album, why you're writing another book, right? Um, because you feel like whatever you did was good for its time, but now it's dated and you need something else, right? And so, to a point, yes, I have inserted myself into a process in which I have a first stepping stone I can even stand. That's already kind of a, a miracle for me. Because um, there was a point in my life where I felt like, and I, I famously uh, told this to my therapist, and if I'm being too personal, please tell me, um, that I feel like my, this is immediately after the war, that I feel like one of those movies like Frankenstein where they have the big electrical cutoff thing, I feel like that was my emotions. Like everything was cut off. I was like, everything was not thrilling to me. And so I don't have that anymore. Um, and a lot of that is my kids, I have to say. So that's good therapy too. But um, I don't have that anymore. What I have instead is a technical problem instead of an existential problem. So the technical problem is how do I write my next book? And if the story is a, a story, so I wrote a story about you know time and experience, family and experience, that's good. But then I read that story and I read other people's experiences of that story and I was like, I think this is a story about inheritance. So how do I write a story about inheritance? So that's the story I'm writing right now. And then whatever it is that will be, will become... So I do feel, I mean, it's, yeah, this may be a too long of an answer, but yes, I feel like I, feel like I did. And I, di and I feel like weirdly um, the, the book made me into an idiot in certain ways because I don't, and I know, I, I know this may seem weird, but I, I can't speak about my book in the same way I can speak about my research. So people say, hey, why did you put that person in that scene? I was like, I don't fucking know. You know? I suddenly sound you know, like, like a very ineloquent person, and I like that. So I, I, because my eloquence, to an extent, is like a defense mechanism that doesn't enable me to deal with things. So I have this other place where that doesn't work anymore. Um, so I'm happy, yeah, to that, yes, thank you, yes. Do you think you felt home when you went to Lebanon, because it made you understand, you were trying to find answers from your parents and grandparents? Yeah, I think it helped me feel connected to them, because here I was in this horrible scenery, I think the scenery was the part that got to me, that I was standing and it looked like war, and there were explosions, and it felt scary, and I felt like I wouldn't be seeing my family anymore. I was like, oh, so that's what it was like. And, and the moment like I kind of cracked that, um, felt like I was closer to them. I was closer to my, 
I should say, not closer to my mother. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about closer to my father and closer to all these what I'm now calling kind of tragic so-called figures that ended up in those situations. Um, and I think in a weird way, I got what I wanted. Uh, and, and you see, this, this is not just my problem. I have the minor version of that problem. There are people who would go to very great lengths to the point of putting themselves in mortar danger, you know, much more actively than I did in order to sense that they're close to something real. That's very interesting to me, the connection between violence and reality, that some people experience violence as this real experience, so they want it again because everything else, it's like a drug, everything else feels muted, and so suddenly they need that. So that wasn't my experience, very happily so. I don't know why it wasn't. Maybe I'm programmed differently. Maybe I'm programmed to freak out by that, right? To enjoy it for like five minutes and then, who the fuck are you? Why are you feeling at home in this weird place where you're afraid you're going to die? So, um, so yeah, it made me feel like I joined the club. Like I wasn't on the outside looking anymore. I was part of the club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So look, it's 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 complicated. I think the first time I was in the army, which was I you would you would say like uh, trauma stage one. Um, then yes, evidently he felt very free to talk about things, but just you know in no context, but in really horrifying things. He never told that to me. Maybe that's his form of intimacy, right? Sharing that that experience with me. It's just that I didn't experience. This it as intimacy. Um, later on, did, when I did feel kind of the full breath of it, because I already had, ki not kids, but I had a meaningful relationship, I was an adult, I kind of felt more the weight of it. Um, did he feel closer to me? I don't know, but what I do know, I, I can ask him, now I can ask him. Uh, we've been through some shit, but, um, so I'll ask him and I'll let you know. But um, one interesting out, uh, result of my research was because I was I, I'm the weird kid in my family if you missed that part and and so if you're the weird kid in your family and you're also kind of sensitive then people make fun of you a lot but they also kind of very appreciate you they never tell you that um, not in Hungarian families at least and uh, very violent people and um, uh, very direct and so my parents are like, oh, we're wrong with his weird questions about, you know, my boyfriend. Oh, And my mom said, you know, she went to therapy at some point. My mom went to therapy, and she used to always like, report her therapy to me, which, again, <laughs> borders are a problem in our family. And she reported that she talked about me in her therapy and my questions about their past. And she said, why do you keep asking about your dad? And I was like, I don't know, because it feels like, I don't know, if I were in his position, I'd be asking those questions, you know. My mom goes once a year in Yom Zikaron to visit her ex's grave. Weird. If you're the, if you're the husband, that, that requires some acceptance on the part of your current partner. So I would imagine there was a process there. And, and then, and I, th and I said something to the effect that, and I probably that dad never spoke about his stuff, 
and I always wanted to know what was up with that. And, and my mother proceeded to ask my father right there, like I was there, my, my baby girl was six months old, I was holding her for dear life at this moment, because it was very embarrassing. Uh, and, and very frightening for me, because like this is you know the, the core of everything. Um, and she asked him, and she said, "Do you feel the war changed anything in you?" Which is a great conversation to have 40 years later, I think. At some point, it's good, better late than ever. And he said, "I was always a crybaby as a child." He began no, he began by not saying anything. I was like, "Yeah, he's not going to answer that." And then he opened with this dramatic monologue, in which he said, "I, I, I cried a lot as a child. I used to get angry and cry." And I used to hate it, which I know that's how I was. Still am, to an extent. And he said, I haven't cried since the war. And my mom was like, really? And I was like, what the hell is going on here? What the hell? I'm not, what? It was, it was a combination of, um, I shouldn't be in this room for this conversation. And I can't believe I'm in this room for this conversation. This is like great stuff, right? <laughs> and holding my, my daughter like this. Um, and so I wouldn't say he felt more comfortable because I was in war, but because I was such a nag about it, something came out. And I don't know if this was a beneficial moment for them. Uh, I hope it was. But I think the fact that I was annoying about it, and I kept bringing it up, and I kept asking them about it, even though there was no chance of getting an answer, I got an answer. Um, so maybe. And now he does send me weird articles about trauma. So he, there's something, there's something, there's something there. Yeah, there's a channel. I saw uh, someone in the back before. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, yeah. No, that's a huge question. <laughs> that's like an art history course right there, but yes. Okay, so I'll begin with the second question, because that's easier for me. Um, what I meant by forgetting, let's think about it. Okay, so the question was, what did I mean when I said that you need to forget in order to remember, in order to record? And you can think about, and I'm talking about in terms of art, right? You can think about, you think about a catchy song, right? A song that you hum. More often than not, it's not a very busy song. There isn't a lot of information there. But there is something very... Uh, kind of sound about how it's made. So it's not about giving you everything. It's about making something memorable. And to make something memorable it means that you need to leave some things out. Because not everything is memorable. I, uh, I swore I wouldn't talk about this. But anyway, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of a YouTube channel that gives business advice to punk bands. <laughs> big fan. And they give feedback to these bands who have really zero financial horizons. And one of, the, one of the pieces of advice given to those bands was, 
Don't write a song and say, that riff was super cool. Uh, that five seconds was okay, but that riff was great too. No, delete those five seconds and write something great. And so the, the emphasis in art also is about making it memorable. And making it memorable means not all the information goes in. When you tell a story, even as a person, not all the information goes in. The kind of people who put all the information in their stories are the people who have a problem. I'm not saying that like uh, jokingly. That's a very painful experience to have to say everything. My, my mother-in-law is like that. She would mention someone's person, and she would have to mention their address and where their parents lived. I was like, I'm not here for that, right? But so, and, and there are exaggerated versions of that. So that's what I mean that um, telling and remembering or telling memorably requires trimming. Now, regarding your, and the second question, the first question was, I said art is about recording. You said isn't about representation, representing things. And the two are not mutually exclusive. And I think at best, um, so I could be really fartsy and say, what does represent mean in postmodern art? What is, what is Modrian representing? What is atonal music representing? I could do that, which is the easy way out. It's an important question. But we're talking about like a figurative representation, right? Or like information, the equivalent of that would be information in poetry and literature. That plays a very significant role because part of making a memorable text is that it feels real, at least in the last 300 years. So part of making a memorable text is that, yeah, that's completely believable. I'm going online to find out if the dragon queen from Game of Thrones is a real person. So whomever, whomever tried that, to Google that person, to see if they're real, that means the artwork succeeded in making you believe that it's real. And that goes with the recording, right? The person who's writing this wild fantasy about dragons may be actually talking about his childhood. So he is successfully recording his childhood. You're just not seeing that at all. So he is conveying something that is important to him. You're reading about dragons in Middle Eve, medieval history. You're both getting what you want. You're getting representation. He gets, you know, a sense of emotional investment. So, yeah. Yeah, in the back, you were before, yeah. Yeah, um, I guess a more philosophical question, but I'm... Oh, God. ...in your perspective. Um, like, I'll first lead in, like, do you think that war is inevitable in life, in our life as humans? <laughs> okay, we'll go there. Yep. Um, well, who would we be, you know, without war? And can we be like? What would that look like? Do you think that there's some form, part of our identity that's holding on to it? How, what would it be like if it didn't exist? All right. So in this case, I'm not going to begin with the second question because that's like that's beyond <laughs> the scope of my meager intelligence. Or no, because that's 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 like like that's um. That's like a counterfactual question. Like, how would I be had I not experienced what I experienced? Or to what, to what extent my experiences or the experiences of those who came before me program me to repeat those experiences? That's a huge question. I don't know. And I don't know about the first question either. But I, I, So I'll, I'll give you my opinion, which is not a, it's not a, it's not a good opinion. Um, and my opinion is that... 
Um, I don't, I'm not saying that war is inevitable, but I'm saying that the type of art that I find myself interested in, which again is a question of taste, not a question of ideology, maybe there's a connection, I don't know, uh, seems to assume that it will happen. Not that it is happy that it will happen, not that it is going to set in motion the things that will make it happen, but is in a way always kind of hunkered down for it to happen. Um, and and, and in the same way that, you know, I'm a parent right now, so this is a theoretical question that I'm very much invested in. And I'm this guy who talks about the Holocaust and writes about war. I should be the guy who has skulls hanging in his, you know, living room. I'm not. And when my daughter asks me about will she die, I, I tend to be very honest and because she seems to be a very smart little girl and I, I don't want to feel like I'm fooling her, but that's not to say I, there's a lot of things I would like her not to know. Um, including today, I just got a text from her kindergarten teacher because today Tel Aviv had a false alarm. I don't know if you're aware of this. Tel Aviv had a false alarm that is a weird, I don't know if this is a missile alarm or a memorial alarm, which is a wonderful picture of Israeli life in one moment. Um, and because she was in kindergarten at the time, the kids freaked out. And so they just assumed it was a real alarm. So they followed the kindergarten teacher. And I was like, why does my daughter have to do this? And I have that thought all the time of taking my daughter. And, and always it's Canada, by the way, in this fantasy. Canada is this warless place <laughs> that, that will never see war ever and has nice people in free healthcare or whatever. Um, I don't want that life for her. Um, so to say it's inescapable and to look at my daughter is a very difficult juggling act for me to do. But if I had to not think about my daughter and just think about what I think, then I think it's coming, yeah. I think it's always coming. I think it's kind of the soon we forget about how horrible it is and then we start doing it again. That's kind of what we do. And there's a larger question of whether or not art is complicit in this or not, which is a separate question, um, which is something else. Yeah. You said, you said that we are, we're without our masks, so there's something in us that compels us towards it. No, I, I think, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we are without our masks in war. I think there are some people who experience war that way, that experience as this real thing. And I think, by the way, the danger for it, I don't know, this is already pontificating, it's not interesting. Never mind. So, and question answered. Yes. <laughs> Anyone else? You said your senses for a long time, your emotional to feel has been dulled. Yeah. What sort of unlocked you? I mean, you think you said you're a kid, but. I think, I don't know. I mean,. Um, it's kind of like my freckles. Uh, I hated my freckles when I was a kid, and one day they, were just, they were just weren't there anymore. Uh, it was probably a much slower process than that. I was like, I have freckles. No, you don't. Wait, what? And I think it was something like that. I think there were major touchstones that I can point to. Uh, my kids being born is one. Um, me, me writing. My PhD, to an extent, was kind of a, like a, 
an important step in that, but I don't really know. Um, I do know that there, the, 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 the reason my daughter helped wasn't just because I wanted her to be happy or because I wanted to be a happy father, because you can't make yourself be that. It was the fact that she existed. It had nothing to do with her. This was way before I even knew her. To, to, you know, she was a baby. Um, so I didn't, we, she didn't have a personality. She was this annoying object that kept wanting me to change her diapers. Um, um, but the fact that she existed was such a shock. I was, I was described like my first, ki my first kid being born felt to me, and I'm sorry for the military metaphor, but you know, by this point you should know, it felt like a rocket hitting our house. It felt like everything was made anew. And the first like whatever months was complete chaos. I didn't know who my wife was. I didn't, wasn't really sure if I hated her or not. I didn't know who my baby was. Same, wasn't really sure if I hated her or not. I had fantasies about throwing her to the dumpster, you know, like not to the dumpster, to the garbage truck when it was passing by and I was awake because of the baby. I hated my parents for intervening and giving me tips. I hated everyone. Everything seemed discombobulated, like fragmented. And there was a hard process of making sense of my new life. And it's not like, you know, the kind of making sense of, oh, I can't party anymore. I never partied. It wasn't loss of personal freedom. I never had personal freedom. It was just literally a different life. I wasn't me anymore. It was a different person. And so I think that the physical encounter was a physical thing, just like war was, right, to an extent. It was a physical encounter. It wasn't a thought. It was reality. It was a big step toward that. And I think maybe the book was the counterpart to that step. And I really wrote the book as she was being born. So they, they both came together. So I would say maybe the publication of the book, if you want to be that kind of more. Yeah. I, I have my question. I'm not sure if you can answer it. But you said that men are like amazing. Or, I don't know, some people yeah. are more easy to go to a situation which brings death closer. Or yeah. Uh, no, but I think what, what but this is my opinion from my book, so this is a very slim view of reality, um, a very narcissistic one too, um, but I think when I say that men seem to find themselves in situations in which they can die, those men think they're protecting someone. And so they think they are in act, they're being active in the work of preservation, right? So someone else gets to live if I die. Or if I die and it means someone else gets to live, so be it. It's just that it's from, you know, my own view of my own writing, death is not option number one when it comes to women in my family. Or in the, or, and this is not, the reason why I'm even saying this is because this seems to be a recurring theme in Holocaust narratives, right? The role of the mother. The role of the mother is never sacrifice, almost. It's let's figure this out. How do I dye my hair? Change your name. You're Christian from now on. Wear a cross. All these 
performative aspects of surviving not, are not necessarily a male fortitude. In the kind of old brushstroke, overgeneralization form of that, the statement, right? So that, you know, when I got the call, I'm talking about myself, come be at war, lying could have been my option. I could have lied. It's like, ah, I'm sick. I can't come. I didn't do that. Interesting. I could have invented ways for me to preserve myself and my, my girlfriend, right? If I thought I was doing that, that didn't involve, you know, running to the light. I have I had a course where I was teaching Frankenstein. I don't know if many of you have read Frankenstein as opposed to the movies. The movies are shit because the book is so great. But the book is pretty much a description of that. You know, men fiddling with life and death and dying and getting other women killed and women kind of finding nooks and crannies to survive. So that's what I mean. I don't mean that the, uh, men don't want to live or that women want to live more. I mean that in the, my own family history of violence, men were either put in that position or placed themselves in, the, in positions in which it's easier for them to die, and dying is their job in the family unit. Um, and I feel like I may have thought like that as well. I don't know. I didn't have a family when it happened to me, but it may have been my thinking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Being alone with the computer and yeah. uh, other people's uh, poetry. Yeah. And trying to investigate your uh, silent father. Yeah. Mother, but you also serve with other people. Yeah. Maybe you, you maybe get a chance to talk to other soldiers or something. So did, what, like, what um, is your experience from like, the, that? Well, it, it's that there's two parts to that. One is the kind of conversations you have with soldiers with whom you've had certain experiences, and those conversations don't come up a lot, but they do come up, um, of being scared, of what you thought in that moment. Uh, I had a friend share like a, night a recurring nightmare he had. So those conversations exist. Um, but I felt like, whether truthfully or not, and I think maybe in my case correctly, if anyone was going to write that story, it was going to be me. Whether or not that's important or not, whether or not that's an important stage for anyone, uh, if anyone's going to write about that moment, it would have to be me because I was a weird guy in the army too because I was the guy who went to study literature and wrote poetry. And so I thought, wait, maybe it's not a coincidence that I'm the weird guy in this weird situation. Maybe I should be writing about this, both for my own terms and my own you know, consumption and investigation, like you said, but maybe also to kind of bring up something that would help them too. Uh, interestingly, some of them read it recently. I'm sure they found it to be a nightmare but you know, to read it, but not because of the content, because I, I write horribly. But that, it, it may <laughs> but. Uh, I, I write difficultly, but um, um, that, that's a weird part, I guess, of that, of what makes war different than other experiences that we've been discussing at, that is the collective experience. Um, and I've been trying, interestingly, to try to um, make it into a collective experience in my academic pursuits as well. I kind of hate academia right now, 
So I'm not in the mood to do that any further. But when I was in the mood, I was planning, I was doing joint talks with people, which is not done in the humanities that much. I'm planning to write a joint paper with someone, which isn't done that much. And I think there's a sense in which the people who are dealing with war in academia, and from the angle that I'm coming from, and there are not that many, they're more willing to cooperate than the norm. So I am trying to be more cooperative in how I investigate too. By the way, the, the whole gender thing, that's a really recent discovery for me, right? Because it only came in the last year or so. Um, and so I'm trying to find ways to collaborate also in a way that would introduce... No, 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 I'm saying... No, no, I'm saying... I'm saying uh, About the book, or a um, interestingly, they didn't really say anything. I I know they um, I know one of them read and said it was crazy, so the emphasis is obviously about my personality. Um, but I know a bunch of them. Interestingly, they went off. There's this uh, NGO that um, interviews soldiers who are willing and clumps them together and sends them off to like a weekend retreat in Romania where they can like hike and talk about the war and talk about, you know, their, unpack their experiences. And uh, I didn't go. And, but people from a unit went and they sent me a, a, like a WhatsApp picture of someone like in a sleeping bag reading my book. And I was like, what the hell is this? And apparently one of them who already read the book brought it to the trip so everyone could read it. So, I have yet to hear feedback from that. This is very recent. I was very moved by it. Um, but then again, I mean, when I wrote the book, I was like, I wish, you know, the first people I had in mind that I wanted them to read, other than my family, was them. And I kind of forgot about that. Because at some point, every audience becomes an audience, and all audiences are equally disappointing in their reactions. So, they're not any different in that way. <laughs> you know, they, they may say something in the future, but uh, we're waiting still for the, <laughs> the votes are not in yet. We have time for one last question. Yes. Yes. So the courage to say something? Okay, so this goes back, this is a very, very good last question. Thank you. Um, because it ties in with what I began, right? So your question is, you're out of the game, what makes you feel like you can step in the game even though the game is a losing game? Because it's not going to work out. There's, there will be no one poem that ends it. There is not gonna be one form of telling the story that will de-necessitate the rest of the, the versions, right? The work will continue. Um, and so, it's not courage. I I'll begin with that. Um, it's the sense of being dead is a very unpleasant sense. And I, I, I can say this now, I got it easy. People have flashbacks, hypervigilance, you know, no, no, no ability, spousal abuse. These are all things that are real effects of, you know, PTSD, what people call PTSD. So I got it, and I got it. I'm not disrespecting or dismissing my experience, but it could have been worse. And it could have been worse for me to find a, a way out, is what I'm saying. The, the hole could have been deeper. And I already had 
verbal abilities and writing coming in. So that may have been my kind of rope. Um, but I don't think it's courage. I think it really is more like, you know, when you have very little toothpaste in the thing, in the tube, and you're squeezing, and you're squeezing, and you're squeezing, it's going to come out. And it's not coming out, and that last piece of toothpaste is not the courageous part. It's not the courageous part of the toothpaste. It's just the one that got squeezed out. Um, which is kind of how I feel about my book, to, be, to speak completely honestly. I feel like it's out because of the pressure. I felt the squeezing. My, my daughter's impending birth was the last piece that, you know, made it pop out. And now that it's out, I'm like, this is, this is garbage. I need to write something better. But, it's, but the fact that it's out allows me to write something better. So it's not, it's not courage. And I actually think it's better not to speak of it in terms of courage because courage is such a fucked up word in this context. Um, courage is, you know, running to, towards, you know, um, throwing yourself on a grenade to save your, your friends is courage. Uh, courage is saying no to war. That's kind of courage too. There's so many versions of courage and speaking about it isn't courage. It's really a, a point of no return at some point. Like you just, it just happens at some point. Right? I, I know, by the way, one last thing. I know musicians, right? I like music a lot. And I know musicians who say, fuck it, I'm not going to write music anymore. I'm done with music. Music is doing nothing for me. And they put the guitar aside and they do, you know, whatever, how many years, whatever. And at some point, they're like, I'm going to fucking play the guitar. So it's something like that. It's not courage. It's almost like an impulse, I guess. Necessity. Necessity, yes. Thank you for your questions. And thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peleg. Thank you.